Welcome to season 16 of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and in this season, we are exploring systems theory and how that relates to our life in leadership, indeed, how it can transform our life in leadership. And so we're calling this season Transforming Leadership, Managing Anxiety in Our Communities. This season, I'm thrilled to welcome Steve Cuss, a pastor and also the author of the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. In his book, he applies family systems theory or Bowen theory to our lives in leadership. And since we've already offered an introductory episode in which we lay the foundation for this conversation by going over eight foundational concepts and do some important definitional work, Steve and I are going to jump right into the deep end of the pool by talking about the most powerful leadership tool, and that is the ability to diagnose and diffuse anxiety. It's a really exciting and fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. And also, if you've listened for a while and this topic is still new to you, um, I just want to let you know that I recorded a time of question and answer with our podcast producer, Colleen Powell. And so if you still got questions, she asked me some great questions and you can head over to Patreon to sign up for that and you'll find the link in our show notes. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Ruth. Yeah, great to be with you. And um, I'm excited to share and also excited to learn. I'm, I've got mm-hmm. some questions of my own for you. So I, I think this should be a fun time. Oh, yes. And so we do see this as a conversation and not an interview. Um, and that makes it all the more fun. So Steve, can you tell me and us and our listeners a little bit about this book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, where it came from in you, you know, what it took for you to be able to write it, what your hope and your passion is in writing this book as we begin, and and even what your own leadership journey has been. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it was fascinating for you. It was very unexpected. Um, but I I went to Bible college as a very young Christian, very enthusiastic and full of zeal, but no real grounding. And then I came out of Bible college, I, I thought, with a fantastic education. I look back <laughs> on my Bible college experience really positively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, I, I, they really introduced me to scripture. But what happened is I came out of Bible college, I was pretty young, I was 24. And so it was all like this zeal, but also my shadow side that I, I didn't even know what that was with a Bible education, and and it turns out I think a guy like me could really weaponize that, a a pretty dangerous person. And so I think by the grace of God, my first job out of college was as a trauma chaplain. And I think, Ruth, uh, there's nothing like death and trauma to get you to the end of yourself faster than anything else will. And so it was that year of my life when I was 24, Mm -hmm. dealing with death every day, learning my own shadow side, my proclivities, uh, it, it kind of, it's almost like death and trauma was the context to bring everything that was under the surface above the surface. While I was a chaplain, one of the leading chaplains uh, at the hospital was trained by the founder of this theory called family system theory, which I know you're passionate about as well, mm-hmm. and we'll get into a lot. And uh, I'd never heard of system theory before, but it, it's one of those theories that it's so intuitive when you learn it. It's like, I've known this my whole life. I've just never knowing what the wording is or how to look at it. And it became an incredibly helpful tool in chaplaincy for me to, to not just survive, but to thrive. Because I think what happens with a guy like me, I'm a type A, I'm driven, I'm a salesy kind of guy. All of those 
tendencies are the worst possible instincts in trauma. You know, chaplaincy is about restraint, whereas my tendency is to be proactive, for example. And systems theory really gave me the tools to notice myself, pay attention to my own soul. You know, I know that's your field. And, and, and to come into a room of anxiety, being more attentive to the presence of God than being caught up in myself. I've been a pastor for 26 years since then. That was a long time ago. And it's kind of funny to say, but 10 years ago, I grabbed a number of my key staff and I said, look, when I was a chaplain, I had this unique training, but it required death and trauma for it to work. I wonder if church leadership is traumatic enough that it'll work here. And sure enough, it turns out church leadership is plenty traumatic to get yes. to the end of yourself. And so then for 10 years, I've been teaching this at, in my church, and then the book came out of that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said that the experience with systems theory for you struck you as being intuitive, like I, I knew it all along. I think there is truth in that. Another side of that, it might be just the other side of the same coin, is that I remember when I started studying systems theory at the Lombard Peace Mennonite center here in our area here in Chicago, those teachers would say that it takes several years of thinking systems to begin to think systems. And and I found that to be true, that it was so different than the way I had viewed things up to that point, that it took me several years to believe it. It took me several years to start thinking it and seeing systems versus just seeing the individuals that were, you know, tussling with each other in a moment or the stress places in relationships. You know, up until that point, I had seen it as being about the people, not able to see the systems, but then eventually I was able to start seeing systems. So I don't know if it's just because I was dense or whatever, but it took me several years of study to start really seeing systems versus just seeing individual bad people. <laughs> yeah, what Does that, was that make like sense? for you, Ruth? Yeah, so you, you, you get introduced to this thing and you're curious about it. What was it like then as you started to try to apply it in those kind of early bumpy days? Well, you know, because people around me were still not seeing it that way, when I would try to bring it, especially into family of origin, and really, let's just be really clear right off the bat, don't start applying this stuff in your church until you've really done your work with your family of origin. That would be a huge mistake. And so, you know, I started trying to work with it there, and it was very different than my own family system. And and it was stressful. It was frustrating when others didn't see the system's way of thinking that I was starting to come into. You know, sometimes I doubted myself, and sometimes I felt like I couldn't comprehend some of the main pieces of systems theory because it wasn't working all that well in the conversations yeah. I was trying to have in my family of origin. I have often said, though, in my own leadership here in the Transforming Center, I've said to pastors and leaders, if you don't know what's happening at the level of family systems, you don't know what's really going on. Another thing that our teachers used to say was that the clerical collar, which many of us don't wear collars anymore, but that the clerical collar is just a screen upon which people project their own idealized expectations or whatever problems and pains and emptinesses that they've had. And it's very, very striking to me how people come into a church environment in particular trying to work out their family of origin stuff, and they might not even know that's what they're doing. It might be unconscious for them, but especially for those of us who are in leadership, people are always going to be projecting their stuff onto us. And if you don't understand systems theory, and if you don't know that that's what's happening, you're going to personalize it and make it about you when oftentimes it's not about you at all. Right. You know, I'm often struck by how, I don't know, I was kind of given a gift that I didn't know I needed 
when I was put into chaplaincy. And, and, and so, for example, the, yeah, I, I don't mean to give the impression that, oh, I learned systems theory and then suddenly it all just made sense. It was more like when they were teaching us, okay, here's a triangulated relationship, for example, mm-hmm. which yes. you know, we might get into on one of these episodes where they'd say, you're going to walk into a room and mom is in the bed with cancer and the son is going to beckon you out of the room as a chaplain and, and whisper to you, mom has cancer. She doesn't know it. Don't tell her. And, yes. and that happened. Like, I, I still can't believe, like, people would do that to me. They would, and I would be like, you're crazy if you think she doesn't know her own body. But systems theory gave you then, rather than me catching that anxiety, it gave me the language or the tool to say, ah, here's what's going on, and yes. here's the move I have to make. So I think what I found so helpful is that it gave me permission to admit that I'm a very anxious person, which as an mm-hmm. Aussie is very hard to do. We, yeah. we are very proud of not being anxious. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, first of all, it gave me permission to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not a pastor, I'm a human. And a human gets anxious and a human gets afraid. And all of these things going on in me as a human are infecting the room unless I'm aware of them and then I can give them to the Lord. Or So I, I, it could be that it was this crucible of intensity that, that yeah. kind of gave me a fast track. But for yes. me, I, I, it felt like a pathway to freedom. I think that's mm-hmm. what I'd have to say is that like, oh, I can be a free human being if I, if I learn this and try this on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also gives a way to name things, like in that example that you just gave. There, you know, I think a lot of families have secrets, but they haven't named the secret keeping as a pattern in their life together. And in fact, because they've always done it, it seems like the, a very natural thing to do. So this person was naming to you that their family keeps secrets, even to the extent that the mother in the bed doesn't know she has cancer, but everybody's keeping the secret around her. But you have a way to name that then. And it helps you to understand what's really going on here, you know, in the system or in your own, if you're thinking through your own family lens. Yeah, I think also the way systems talks about anxiety, which is the heart of systems theory, Mm -hmm. is very helpful for people who think anxiety is just like worry and fear. And then they they write it off. They say, I'm not an anxious person. But when you say, well, secret keeping is anxiety. and It's a and way anger. of managing your anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anger yep. is anxiety. Mansplaining is anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like all of these behaviors are actually the evidence that you're full of anxiety you can't manage. That was game changing for me. Well, we're already jumping into the deep end of the pool, but I'm going to back up a little bit and give a title to this episode. We want to talk in this episode about the most powerful leadership tool. And Steve, you name that in the introduction to your book. You say that the most powerful leadership tool is to be able to diagnose and diffuse anxiety. Did I get you right? Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why you believe this is true and and how you've really written this whole book based on that that whole idea, the the most powerful leadership tool to diagnose and diffuse anxiety? Wow. So so the. The heart of system theory is is nothing more than learning to notice the spread of anxiety. I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we have to define anxiety at some point, but the general idea is when you're noticing yourself get reactive, uh, but also any staff meeting, any Thanksgiving dinner, mm-hmm. look at any group of people that are in relationship over time. So like a staff, maybe they meet once a month or once a week. What you can do is you can start to notice how everyone in that group manifests anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so the simple questions are, okay, who's generating it? 
And you don't ask that to blame. Uh, family systems actually has no interest in blame at all. That's right. So if you figure out, okay, this person's generating, it doesn't make that person the scapegoat, they're not the bad person. But then the, who's catching it? And so on a very real sense, like let's take an elder meeting. Like uh, I, I just stopped being a lead pastor a few months ago. The elders at my church, we have male and female elders. They're fantastic human beings. But they, they bustle in from a full day of work to this once-a-month meeting. I've been thinking about church every day because I obsess over church. When your pastors take church very personally, my, some of my elders may have started thinking about it on the drive-in from their day, and that means that uh, they might ask questions that I'm not ready to answer. I'm unprepared. Now, one of the things that makes me anxious is if I don't know the answer to a question. We might experience this on this series, Ruth. You might ask me something, and we might see me get anxious in real time as I don't know the answer. So now I don't know the answer because I believe I have to know. Now what happens next is if I'm anxious, I will spread that anxiety onto my good elders. I'll get combative, defensive, I'll exaggerate. Rather than noticing and naming that I have a tendency to need to know something, I'll react. And then when I do that, you can see my elders all reacting as well. Another simple example, I think most of us have been in an elders meeting where one elder will ask kind of open-ended, vague, critical questions mm-hmm. that are really hard to get your hand around. Like, what is it you want to know? But they're critical, and they're kind of implying that you're an idiot as a pastor. <laughs> I you, hate it when can, that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can see the rest of the elders get anxious by putting their heads mm-hmm. down. Like, no one speaks up and says, hey, we don't do that here. We ask concrete, mm-hmm. clear questions. We don't ask these vague, you know, where I'm on the sideline. Um, and so you can see anxiety spreading all through a group you know, Ruth, I know you've been on church staff, so obviously it's, it's been a while, but you must have seen this at play yourself, oh, and I'm sure even, absolutely. even now. Yeah, what's yeah. that look like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, when things are kept too tightly in control, you know, so the person leading the meeting has their own agenda, and if anything else comes into it, they they get very uncomfortable that people are moving off the agenda that they had set. You know, and then they try to get it back. They try to rein it back in versus maybe even trusting that there might be something of God, something that needs to be heard in what's being shared. So I think high levels of control in 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 meetings is one way in which I've seen people manage anxiety. You know, and there are certain personalities that have a little bit more of that or maybe a different way of doing it in a kind of a top down way or making people feel threatened uh, or uncertain about the value of what they're sharing and what they're bringing. Um, or the, the defensiveness around a question. So someone brings a harder question, and depending on how aware the leader is of their own inner dynamics, they might shut it down versus being able to receive it as a question that could be good for the group. Um, so, you know, things like that are able to be seen. And then, it, But if you understand the way anxiety works within yourself and within others, then you can manage yourself better towards leaving the space open versus shutting people down in a meeting. Yeah, that's the fundamental is, is that was also the counterintuitive, like you mentioned before, some of this is counterintuitive, the idea that if I actually want to focus on other people, I have to know what's going on in me. That's right. And that was not the way I was trained. That sounds yeah. selfish to me. Mm-hmm. But when I'm not aware of what's going on in me, my goodness, my ability to infect others unintentionally in the name of Jesus even, you know, 
and and I think this can get really dangerous. Like like in some faith leaders, we're way too quick to um, share a scripture with somebody. I know that sounds almost heretical, but that somebody's bringing us their pain, and we think we're being helpful, but what we're doing is we can't manage the size of their situation. That's right. So we're shrinking it down to something where we can then give advice, which might be like a verse from Philippians. So another thing systems theory, I think, really equips you to do is pay attention to your tolerance for ambiguity, your tolerance for difficult things, difficult people. And then if you can be aware of yourself, your own triggers, you can walk right into those situations and notice that, of course, that God is already there uh, and that you can actually be a powerful I think pastoral presence, but it's, yeah, it's tricky and it takes practice. You can't kind of read your way or think your way into this. You, you have yes. to try it. Yeah. And I, that's what I want to say here at the beginning of this whole season is that there is a difference between thinking about interesting thoughts. And, you know, this is going to be an interesting set of thoughts. I mean, you know, systems theory is an interesting way to look at things. Your book is very interesting. Hopefully our conversation is a little bit interesting. But there's a really big difference between listening in on an interesting conversation and gathering information and reading a book versus actually starting to work with this stuff. And as I have prayed into this season in particular, my biggest prayer is that we wouldn't just listen to a stimulating conversation and then walk away and not be affected by it. My prayer is that we will get in here and do some work. And there's going to be some really practical things that we're going to give for us to do and to work on and to practice. And actually, my hope is that in every single episode, we will leave our listeners with something practical to try, something practical to do, not just listen to a stimulating conversation. So you're right. It's it's challenging. One of the things that you said that I found interesting was you talked about the natural tendency that we have to blame people. So when a meeting's going south, you know, or, or a conversation or a relationship is going south, there is something in us that has a tendency to blame. And I remember very, very early in my own experiences and, te- and learnings with family systems theory is that that was one of the things that I had to confront in myself was that I don't know if it's my evangelical upbringing or what it is, but or m- maybe it's just a part of being Protestant Christians overall, but we do a lot of blaming. Yeah. And when when they would talk about the fact that it's not about blame, it's just about being able to name what's happening, I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to have to change (laughs) the ruts and grooves in my brain to actually look at something that's going on and not want to blame somebody. You know, so that was one of the huge shifts that it took a long time to actually begin to step back and not judge a situation, but actually just see the system and wonder what I could do to change my own participation in the system. Does that resonate with you, that blaming part? I I love how you said the ruts and grooves in your brain. I think think that's a literal thing that Mm -hmm. that we are in these lifelong habits of thinking and behaving a certain way, and therefore it takes quite a long time. Yeah, I think it's the human condition. I I think Genesis 3. All the the way back to Genesis, right? Yeah, 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 hiding and blaming. And uh, and that's why I have spent my life studying systems theory, because um, it's probably at this point we should just, told the listeners i have no qualifications in this i'm not <laughs> i'm not a i'm not a counselor i'm not licensed in anything i'm a pastor who studied systems theory which is a psychological theory mm-hmm. but when i discovered that it so much of it leads us to the gospel that's what got me fascinated with it is okay the human condition wants me to blame others but i think god invites me to take responsibility for myself and that's right systems theory 
says basically if, if i mean i'm coining it but system service says you can be free if you take responsibility and don't blame and i'm like that sounds so much like the gospel uh, and then what got fascinating to me ruth i know we'll probably dig into this more but the chronic anxiety is generated by false belief and i i have bet my whole life that jesus sets me free and so even in ministry like some of the darker days of ministry i'd be reading the gospels and there's Jesus saying that his burden is light and his uh, burden is easy, his yoke is light. Light, And I'm like, that's a lie. That's not know, That's a place true. where I could be tempted to cuss right there sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you and, know, because and, sometimes and it doesn't me, feel true. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and for me, that was a crossroads. I'm like, well, what if I could actually be a pastor in a way that that was true? That, yeah. that the freedom and the peace and love that Jesus offers that I'm experiencing, not just sharing with others. And I... I have found that studying my own anxiety and my own reactivity, that leads me to my own false beliefs. And that then leads me, if I'm brave, and to your point, embodying some practices, that leads me to some freedoms. So, Steve, let's talk for a moment just about anxiety itself, because you've mentioned that that's the central component to understanding systems theory. And it's actually very helpful, your, your definition of leadership as uh, being to diagnose and diffuse anxiety. What exactly is anxiety and how does it function? And then you also talk about the fact that it's contagious. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the contagious nature of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, this is really the heart of systems theory. You know, people might be saying, well, what is this thing you guys are talking about? Systems yeah. theory is simply the study of anxiety and how it spreads. Oh, that's how helpful. It spreads. Yeah, how it spreads in me, first of all, always starting with yourself, and then how it's spreading in any group of people. Where, where things get tricky, Ruth, is system series using the clinical word anxiety. What, what they're actually talking about is a type of anxiety which is known clinically as chronic anxiety. Mm-hmm. This is different than trauma. It's different than, for example, grief, which is a form of anxiety. It's different than when your kids run out on the street and you're doubt. Um, that's what's known as acute anxiety when someone's in life and death. So, you know, if your kid's playing on the street, that's not the time to use the tools of systems theory. Oh, what's going on in me? And no, go out and <laughs> rescue your kid, right? But why I love systems theory is it's the number one anxiety for leaders and parents is chronic anxiety. Because uh, the, probably the best way to understand chronic anxiety is reactivity. That's how I teach it. What makes you reactive? And reactivity looks like getting bigger or smaller so when we get bigger like that's my tendency maybe i raise my voice or i mansplain or i start to fix or i dominate but then some people they think react they're like wait a minute i get smaller i'm like a turtle in my shell so i'll be in a staff meeting i'm feeling reactive so i'll try to hide and that can look like i'm not going to share everything i think this is not a safe room anymore so so chronic anxiety is reactivity, and then reactivity or chronic anxiety, it's generated by assumptions and false beliefs. That's how your listeners can really get to the bottom of it. Okay, what do I assume? And I think this is a great gospel question. What might I believe that isn't true? And any time you are acting out of a false belief, and any time you're making an assumption that isn't true, you're you're getting what's clinically called chronically anxious. The reason it's contagious is we all place assumptions and false beliefs on each other. 
and so we catch them from each other so simple example is i'm a pastor as somebody visits my church for the first time they come up after the sermon to meet me and they know me as pastor before they know me as steve which is to say they're bringing all these assumptions mm -hmm. what does it mean that this guy's a pastor and all their assumptions are based on the last pastor probably they they had now if i assume about myself that i must make everybody happy all the time which is one of my personal assumptions and they're placing their assumption on me mm -hmm. it's almost like a noose around my neck mm -hmm. and if i'm not aware i'll catch their assumption and so that's why chronic anxiety is fascinating it's the only anxiety that's contagious yeah. trauma is not contagious grief is not contagious mm. chronic anxiety is contagious and, we and it literally it moves other. doesn't it it literally it's, moves around a system it's fascinating ruth yeah. we had a we had one of the worst ever uh, forest fires in colorado just a few months ago we, my family actually housed an evacuee family and it was 100 mile an hour winds and the fire was jumping around the place. That's chronic anxiety. It's, yeah. it's not even linear sometimes. Sometimes mm -hmm. it, you can watch it jump and spread like a wildfire. Yeah. Right. Wow. And so your insight where you state that leadership is the ability to help diagnose and diffuse anxiety then takes on even more power as you describe what chronic anxiety is. So that's, and, and, and I found that statement in your book very, very hopeful, you know, that it's not like, Chronic anxiety is, is not like a forest fire and that it's uncontrollable, right? I mean, that you're saying that a pastor or a leader can actually diagnose it, see, it, see where it is, and that there are ways to help diffuse it. Is that what I'm, that's what I'm reading you say? There's tremendous hope in this. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you, you've also gone on record, right, of saying that, that if you don't understand the system, you, you're not, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you're not even leading kind of right. is, is your idea too. It's the same idea. Because not only is chronic anxiety contagious, but so is calm presence. And, yes. And so if the leader can first work on calming yourself, you can calm anxious people down. It's very powerful. Whereas the human tendency is, okay, if you're anxious, the human tendency is, well, I must anxiously calm you down. Like when your toddler has a tantrum at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. i gotta, I, I got to get him under control, but what's going on in you? <laughs> Is is everybody around here thinks I'm a terrible mother and why can't I get my kid under control? That's exactly it. The assumptions mm -hmm. you have about yourself as a mum yep, are, exactly. are boiling over and infecting your child. And so mm -hmm. System Series says when somebody is anxious, first calm yourself down. The, the simplest way I think of it is the flight attendant. First put the oxygen mask on your own face before helping other people. And too many leaders are running on empty. They're carried by their anxiety. They're reactive. And they're trying to calm everybody down anxiously. Whereas you look <laughs> at Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus was the preeminent calm presence. It's stunning. You can go through the Gospels and read it through the lens of systems. There's actually a book I'll be working on in 2023, mm -hmm. is, is how Jesus actually lived these principles out intuitively to, to, to spread calm presence. And, and here's what's really interesting, Ruth. I'd, I'd love to dive into this through the course of our conversations is it's very difficult. It's almost impossible to be aware of God's presence when you're filled with chronic anxiety. It's almost mm -hmm. like, it's almost like that insulation that spreads in your walls. Yeah. Chronic anxiety like spreads in your soul and it, it actually yeah. displaces your awareness of God. And so then you start to feel like, Oh, it's all on me. And I must, you know, how can, why is, 
you start feeling isolated, you start going to self-pity. But, you know, I've talked about a lot here. F- fundamentally, systems theory is, is simply the science and the art, I guess it's also an art, of paying attention to anxiety as it spreads. Wow. That's, that is, that's very, very helpful. And I, I imagine that a lot of our listeners have never even thought of leadership in that kind of a definition because we think of leadership in our culture as being about vision and managerial skill and effective communication and you know all of that and it's very almost almost counterintuitive to think that we would define leadership as the ability to diagnose anxiety and then diffuse it i love that and and it is very hopeful and the fact that you know you're talking about a calm presence or a non-anxious presence that just by being a non-anxious presence or a calm presence you can begin to calm the whole system and that that is leadership i, I find yeah. that to be exciting and hopeful well, you know we're, we're seeing so many like famous christians being exposed right now right as we're recording this it's it's almost mm-hmm. a weekly event it is Yes. And what, what those organizations don't realize is that the, the system or the organization takes on the anxiety of the leader. And the higher up in leadership you are, the more your anxiety infects not just individuals but the whole way of operation. And so right. what, what we're seeing in some of these exposing situations is a board covering up the abuse of a leader and that's because they're anxious. That's they're right. afraid. Rather mm-hmm. than chasing truth, they're trying to protect an organization. And mm-hmm. so, system theory actually is a, a power tool to explain a lot of human behavior. And yeah, we'll get into some of that. So, Steve, you talk about the fact that leadership then is about the emotional context and understanding and knowing the emotional context, which I thought that was very interesting too because a lot of times leaders react and respond to the content of a conversation versus having any insight at all about the context. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, emotional context versus content? Yes, that's right. That's how anxiety spreads is through emotional context or reactivity. And you're exactly right. I mean, I probably couldn't say it better than you just said it is. Well, what no, I said, is... you, I, said, I said what you said. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, so we focus, like if we, uh, let's put ourselves in a staff meeting again. We focus on the content, the agenda. What do we have to get mm-hmm. done, you know? But, but instead, if a leader can keep kind of one eye on what's going on between people, what you will yes. notice, mm-hmm. is, it's always Jim that speaks up first. No matter what yeah. happens, Jim's always the first one to speak. Why is it that Sally never speaks up, but when she finally does, she has some kind of secret veto power? Like, how is it that Sally's vote counts more than mine? You know, yeah. so this is the emotional context, the secret agreements, the unspoken behavioral patterns. And what's funny, Ruth, is, is you know, I'm a type A entrepreneurial leader. It's my tendency. And I often run into guys like me and they'll read my book or they'll do my training and they'll say, do you, like, do you ever get anything done at your church? It sounds like you just sit around and talk about your feelings all the time. And, and I, I'm always like, oh, that sounds terrible. No, we don't. We, of course we don't do that. We are more <laughs> productive than you are. I try to be provocative. <laughs> like, I, I'm more efficient than you are. I get more done than you do because we've gotten all of this emotional work done. But what you're doing, I, I usually will challenge someone else that you're turning over your staff. Your, your team is having a meeting after the meeting. You know, all of this sideways energy going on in the name of vision, 
And, and I think that's probably what I'm trying to champion right now, Ruth, is the idea that it's this work is long, slow work, much like your work is. There's no shortcut. But in the long run, you if, if you're mostly interested in efficiency, you're not going to want to do my work anyway. But I will say efficiency and productivity is the byproduct of this work because now you're free. You're not entangled. Uh, you're not constantly trying to hire staff that you're burning out. I remember working with a church where they just counted on staff turnover as a as a bottom line. Just well, thirty percent of the staff turnover. That's just, wow. That's the price we pay for the kingdom. And I'm like, you don't have to if you don't want to pay. <laughs> there's another way. Yeah, you yeah. can have happy employees. Yeah. Wow. Well, Steve, I think that's hilarious that you know of church staffs who actually count on attrition. You know, to keep them at their bottom line, and maybe they treat their staff badly. You know, so that the attrition actually happens. Oh, I hope I hope that we can get away from that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's time. And I think you're absolutely right that you don't have to do it that way, and that you're not just sitting around talking about your feelings all the time. And you make this statement about the fact that paying attention to what's going on under the surface is also an effective spiritual growth tool. I think that's really fascinating. That there's actually something important going on when you're paying attention at this level. Do you want to say more about that? How is this kind of paying attention an effective spiritual growth tool for those who are involved? Right. I I think there is a level to which when we pray and study our scripture and and participate in our spiritual practices, they only sink to a certain depth in our soul. But I don't think that God transforms me until I openly invite God into my fears my recurring patterns. That's one of the gifts of system theory. It, gets, it, it shows me where I keep running into myself. And I think the invitation to invite God really deeper it, into some areas of my life that maybe I hadn't intentionally invited the Lord into. But, you know, Ruth, even as I'm answering this, I'm very mindful, this is your life's work. Uh, the idea that the soul of the leader is, the, is, is vital in soul awareness and soul care what I'd be curious to hear what got you into that. Why, why Mm -hmm. did you decide that this was the thing you were going to put your life into? Well, I think because I came to a place of real stuckness in my own life where the spiritual practices alone without tools that actually help you, that actually help you do self-examination in some pretty concrete ways. It's easy for us to either maintain a certain sort of piety that's disconnected with our ordinary life and it's disconnected from actual practice. You know, I, I feel like if I'm having these warm, fuzzy experiences with God in my devotions, or if I'm learning a lot about the Bible or whatever, that I'm actually growing, and I'm not. I'm still as stuck as I've ever been emotionally and spiritually. And so family systems theory, for me, was a concrete way of of understanding some of what had shaped me and also gave me a way to take more responsibility for myself versus thinking that I could change everything out there, which I can't. Now I know for sure I can't do. And in fact, I was talking with a wonderful therapist recently where we were talking about the fact that there's this idea that if nothing changes, if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? And then the idea that, you know, not only does nothing change if nothing changes, but nothing changes if I don't change, right? Like I can't, I can't control everything that's going on out there, but what I can control is myself and my own awareness of myself and how I function in the groups that I'm in and particularly in the groups where I have a leadership role and function. And so for me, family systems theory was another way to take responsibility 
for my own behavior and my own growth. And it was actually a tool of self-examination. And so there's a spiritual practice that I think goes along really well with family systems theory. And that is the practice of the examen, which is a very traditional Christian practice. But what's the content of that practice? And, you know, the Enneagram can provide some content because you can look at false self patterns through the Enneagram. You know, the seven deadly sins can be some content for your self-examination. But I think that family systems theory can provide content, a way of looking at one's own participation. So that as I do my examine over the last 24 hours and I notice perhaps a meeting, let's stay with this meeting theme, with an elders meeting or for me it would be a staff meeting or a board meeting. And the the meeting went sort of wonky, you know? It it was not effective, and I knew it, and we got stuck in some human dynamics. Well, the first thing we're accustomed to doing, as we said, is to blame it on other people. That meeting went wonky because of that person's this or that person's that. But instead to have my first question in my exam and be, God, what was it about me? How did I impact that meeting? How was I stuck in my own patterns and contributed to that meeting in ways that were not effective because I was not aware and I couldn't make better choices. So you use a quote in the beginning of your first chapter that I've used many times, especially in our self-examination retreat, the one from Viktor Frankl, that between Mm. stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm. And in that space, we have a choice, you know? (laughs) I think that is so powerful. That's probably one of the most powerful awarenesses we could have as Christian people is that between stimulus, that things that happens that makes us so uncomfortable, and how we respond, can I cultivate space where I can actually discern what's happening within me and make a better choice? And I think family systems theory helps us to see where we're stuck, and it can create space to make a different choice and a better choice. And if we're practicing the examen as a spiritual practice, then, like you said, we're inviting the Holy Spirit of God in to give us guidance in moments of self-awareness like that. Yeah, just listening to you as you talk about that and the Ignatian practices, they really are an incredible gift and they they land so nicely in a system's idea because chronic anxiety wants to keep you on the treadmill of productivity or reactivity. And so examen is an incredible gift to get you off that treadmill, that, that Viktor Frankl idea. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is how hard it is to know when we're anxious. Yes. And, and, and so I just keep running, 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 reacting. But that the gift of pausing is one of the most powerful gifts. And of course, yeah, um, Jesuit spirituality gives us all manner of tools. I mean, even on this uh, recording, just out of camera, I know we're doing an audible here, but I've mm-hmm. got my candle here lit just in an Ignatian practice of remembering God is with us. And it, it does help me when I'm anxious just to relax into the presence of God. Mm. It's already here, but I'm not aware of it. You know, kind of Jacob's cry, I think, in Genesis 28, surely the Lord was with me and I wasn't aware of it. Mm. That's that's a family systems prayer. Uh, whether he was aware of it or not, I'm not sure. Yeah. It reminds me, too, of the importance of paying attention in the body. And we haven't mentioned the body yet, um, but I think in your writings you've identified the fact that the first sometimes the very first way we know we're anxious is by paying attention to some sort of the way that anxiety resides in the body and shows itself in the body. 
How do I know when anxiety is what's at work, I think is the question I'm asking. That's what's so crazy. And, and I, I, we probably do need a little more time. Is most people, like if people are listening to this and they're like, I don't know how to know when I'm anxious, I would just want to say to you that's very common. And maybe that's what you were saying, Ruth, earlier, is this idea that this actually isn't, it takes years to kind of figure it out. Sometimes the simplest question you can ask is, how do I know when I'm anxious? And yeah. oftentimes, Ruth, you need people who love you to help you. You can ask mm -hmm. your kids. You can ask people in your life, how do you know I'm anxious when I don't know I'm anxious? And if you're a safe person, they'll, they'll tell you. So the examen is one practice where we can now add in, is there any way in which I'm stuck, you know, in my own family patterns or stuck in my own normal ways of dealing with anxiety? I think the examen is a powerful spiritual practice. But Steve, do you have any other practices that would be helpful to us as we conclude? <laughs> in fact, I actually do. And, and, and I'm sorry to say they don't sound nearly as spiritual as the examen <laughs> prayer, but I think they're very helpful. The, the, the rookie practice is put yourself in an anxious situation where you're not involved. So that usually means watching a TV show that you're not in. You're on the couch and they're on the TV. Uh, I've got a dear friend, Trisha Taylor. She listens to AM talk radio to see how many minutes can I listen to it before I swear. That's kind of her rule. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they drive her crazy. So I watch Gilmore Girls. I know this does not sound nearly as Ignatian, but my teenage daughter loves Gilmore Girls, that TV show. And there's so much anxiety in that show that I get fed up with it because it's predictable and recurring to a systems theorist. So far, I can get through two and a half episodes before I have to leave the room. So that's one of the ways I practice is watch anxiety in a system where you're not involved, where you're not in the system. Mm. If you start practicing at Thanksgiving dinner, it's going to go really south. But yeah. if you start practicing by watching it on the screen, that's safe. You've got a God gave you the gift of a remote. You can turn it off. And then the second idea, this is a braver practice, Ruth, but intentionally put yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do this week, but you have to do something. Mm -hmm. You have to make a decision or make a call. That will make you anxious. Just not knowing what to do and having to do something, that'll make you anxious. And all you have to do is notice what's going on in you. That's where you can use the Ignatian practice. Those would be very simple things that anyone yeah. could do. I've had a light bulb moment. I realize now why I love This Is Us so much is because it's so great to watch another family do their thing and have all their anxiety and have to work their issues out. And it gives me a break from my own anxiety. So This Is Us is a great show. They, so much anxiety. Theory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, wow. All right. Oh, this has been a great conversation, Steve, and I can't wait to keep going. We've got more episodes to come. So God help us to notice these things, to be brave enough to put ourselves in situations where we can observe ourselves and hopefully open up to learnings about how to bring and be that non-anxious presence, which is one of the most significant, I think, aspects of true spiritual leadership. And may God do that in us as we practice these things. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. I hope that you are already finding yourself to be encouraged during these challenging days that God has resources for us. God has ways of leading us forward if we can just stay open. I also want to mention that here in the Transforming Center, we have two identical dates in the fall for an event that we call the Pursuing God's Will Together Retreat. And this retreat is all about helping leadership groups discern and do the will of God together. It's about helping them to move beyond just strategic thinking and planning to a place where we listen for the voice of God in our own lives and in our lives 
as leadership groups so that we can do God's will together as leaders. And so if this is a desire that's on your heart, if you have questions about how God is leading you forward as a community, then this two and a half day retreat will give your leadership group a chance to come away, to listen to God and to each other, and to discern God's way forward for you. You can find information about this in our show notes or by going to our website. Oh,